Today's episode is with the second of the DEA agents who are represented in Netflix series Narcos. Today it is Steve Murphy, and this was also, along with Javier Pena, a video interview. So check out Javier Pena if you haven't yet. You can listen to it on your feed, or you can go to YouTube, look for Eric Hunley, and you can watch both interviews with Javier and Steve Murphy. Don't forget, I also have a live stream available where you get to ask questions of previous guests yourself. Next up, we will have Robin Dreek, who was a spy master in the FBI. And now I bring you Steve Murphy. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. And now for the second half of this episode with Steve Murphy, the other half of the DEA agents made famous by Netflix Narcos. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing well, Eric. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm really thrilled to have you, and I understand you actually spent a little bit of time in my neck of the woods. I did. Um, I was. I started as a police officer, uniformed officer in Bluefield, West Virginia in 1975, but in 1981, I was picked up as a special agent with the Norfolk and Western Railroad Company, which is now Norfolk Southern Railroad. And I moved to uh, lived in Virginia Beach, but I actually worked two years on the on Lambert's Point, the coal piers down there in Norfolk. So love that area. That is really cool. And how is it different, though? Because I've never really investigated what exactly a railroad police officer did or does. Yeah, they, you know, they have the responsibility of investigating any crimes committed against the railroad. The railroad has uh, years ago had a lot of, uh, I guess, power. You know, I mean, it, even our retirement system was a federal railroad retirement system. Uh, but anyway, uh, railroad policemen investigates all crimes committed against the railroad except capital crimes. And then you call in the local investigators on that. Um, and like when I, uh, I spent two years in Norfolk, then I transferred back to West Virginia and I still maintain jurisdiction in West Virginia and Virginia. So, um, it was, uh, it's more than a security guard because there are investigative functions, but it to be quite honest. It just wasn't really what I wanted to do in law enforcement. So not taking anything away from the railroad cops that are out there now. I got some great friends and there's some outstanding investigators that I learned a lot from, but just wasn't what I wanted to do. Okay. And I think you had applied for different um, federal positions. Was Did you happen to apply for the FBI or Treasury or any of the other agencies? Yeah, I, uh, I applied to be an FBI agent. And, and I'd like to jokingly say the best thing that ever happened to me is they didn't take me. Uh, but that's that's kind of law enforcement humor. And the contractor <laughs> understand what I'm talking about. And actually applied to be a customs agent uh, through the Department of Treasury. Hmm. And the first notice I got from them was to come in and take the test to be an IRS agent. Well, I didn't want to be an IRS agent. I'm, I'm not that smart, to be honest with you. But, uh, you know, went and took the test and, and the IRS never called me. So I must have really screwed up that test. Well, you know, I've, I've had um, actually nine FBI agents on and I'm always curious about where these jurisdictions are and where they overlap. Because to me, there has to be a lot of overlap between DEA and FBI, you both handle drug cases, right? Yeah, and, and here's the big difference. So DEA is a single mission agency. 
That's their own responsibilities investigating narcotics and narcotics traffickers. Okay. We have no other crimes that we investigate, maybe money laundering that's associated with that. And then there are some peripheral crimes, uh, peripheral crimes such as, uh, Human trafficking, they're involved in that type of business and, you know, uh, extortion. And, but it's all related to the drug business. So it's one crime that DEA is responsible for, for investigating. If you look at the Bureau, they have over 400 different crime categories they're responsible for investigating. I mean, talk about being overwhelmed. And, you know, we like to give them a hard time. And, and it's just friendly competition between agencies. Uh, they've even got one crime that says, or one law that says if there's a crime committed that doesn't fall in one of the other categories, they're still responsible for it. So, you know, God bless those guys. They've got their hands full with everything that they're responsible for trying to keep up with. So if a homicide is um, involved with a drug case, then would the FBI come in and, and work with you on it? Or how, how does that break down? No, a homicide, we would call the local investigator. So, um, like I was stationed in North Carolina at one point, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, if you're in a bigger city where they have experienced homicide investigators, you'd probably call them in. But if you're out maybe in a more rural area, you might call the state, like in North Carolina, you might call the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. Um, um, in South Carolina, it's the state law enforcement division. I know in, in Florida, it's, uh, um, I just forgot Florida law enforcement division. Um, so there's it, it really depends on where you're at when the crime happens as to whether you call them in. We do not have the authority to investigate a crime nor a murder, nor do most of our people have that experience. That's that's something you don't want to mess up the crime scene. I believe in the book you talked about a particular incident where you didn't know if it was bad guys who were casing you when you were casing a place or were observing it and it wound up being cops. Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, we call that blue on blue situation. So um, what happened? I was still a relatively new agent. Uh, I no longer had a senior partner that I answered to, but you know what, if you've got a brain, you always maintain those connections because the guy I worked with at that time was Gene Frankar, and he's probably one of the smartest human beings I ever met in my life. And uh, still, as you know, as newer guys coming up making cases, even though you've got all these years of law enforcement experience, you know, you're still going back and, and seeking advice because he just he really knew what he was doing. So we had an informant that gave us the information. At this time, uh, another agent, Kevin Stevens, and I had become partners, and, and he was a little bit younger than I was as, as far as time on the job. But we were smart enough to run everything by Gene. So Gene, he said, yeah, go with it. But, you know, these are things you need to be careful of. Well, we went out and set up our pre-surveillance of the meeting sp uh, spot. And it was it was actually a Denny's restaurant at the Miami International Airport. So I'm you know, all of our cars have blacked out windows. And, and I pull into this parking lot across from the Denny's where I can see the front door. And, you know, cops are notorious for backing in even in unmarked cars backing into a parking place. So mm. you, you know, you always pull into a parking place cause that, you know, it's less obvious and the criminals recognize that as well. So anyway, mm. I'm watching the front door and after about 20 minutes, I'd park next to a picked up pickup truck and it had blacked out windows, but everybody's got blacked out windows in Florida, mm -hmm. South Florida. So uh, anyway, after about 20, 30 minutes, the truck, I hear the motor start and I look, I didn't realize anybody was sitting in it cause I hadn't seen any movement and he pulls out, and then he pulls on the other side of me and now blocks my view. And I'm thinking, well, for mm. my first 
or well, crap, now I can't see the front door. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it only took a few seconds to realize something's not right here. So I alerted all the other DEA agents on the radio and I pulled out of the lot and we went to a, a different meeting site and we all, you know, we, we knew that was either bad guys, it was either the bad guys setting us up or doing surveillance on us, or it might be other cops. So we all put our bulletproof vests on and so forth, put our, our gun rigs on, and we came back. And as we pulled in the parking lot, we had guys come from behind, and we had three cars coming from the front. We turned our blue lights on so they knew we were cops and got out. And sure enough, it was uh, undercover narcotics detectives from Hialeah Police Department. Uh, so our informant was talking to one of their informants. And you know what? I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the dangers associated when you're working undercover. Um, mm -hmm. Law enforcement can be extremely law enforcement agencies and and personnel can be extremely competitive. You know, they say we're all type A personalities. I don't think I am, but my wife says that's what makes me a type A personality. <laughs> so um, you're you're very protective of your investigations. Uh, which is extremely dangerous. And in this case, you know, thank the good Lord, it worked out for us. But I mean, that could have ended up in a gun battle right there. And we didn't really got the case started. Is that relatively common? I wanted to ask that because that to me is a, such a frightening scenario where you have a mix up and potentially it'll be all good guys killing each other. It happens more than you want to admit to it. Uh, I know there was a case where uh, years prior to this, down in South Florida, where a uh, highly high, high police officer shot another undercover because they didn't know that each were in the same situation. But now deconfliction centers have been set up across the country, um, especially in major, major cities, so that agencies, if you're going to go out and do a deal, you contact the deconfliction center. And I don't want to give up too, too much information oh, yeah. on how they work, but um, the mechanisms are in place now so that you can prevent blue on blue situations. Okay. So there's a bit more communication and cooperation between agencies. I'm praying. Absolutely. Thank God. <laughs> now you were in Miami, which years again, early eighties. I got there in 1987 and I left oh. in 1991. Okay. That's right. Because you got to Columbia after um, Javier, right? Correct. Okay. So, were you during the thick of the quote co cocaine cowboys period? It was uh, it was still very active down there in 1987. Um, I think it was starting to slowly calm down a little bit, but it was still very common to find you know murder bodies anywhere, mm -hmm. you know, trunks of cars or houses or wherever. You just never knew. Uh, it was still extremely violent down there during the time. Um, everybody carried guns, you know, cell phones were just starting to come out then, believe it or not, uh, in the late 1980s. And, mm. um, you know, quite honestly, one of the, one of the, you don't profile, but, uh, you know, one of the first indicators, if you saw, <laughs> if you saw, uh, um, people that you thought might be Colombian or Cuban carrying cell phones, you know, because they were so new, it was relatively a good, uh, option that that could be someone involved in the narcotics business. Now Either that a real estate agent. <laughs> exactly. But, and, and the people that listen to this, please don't come back and, and badmouth me for profiling. Cause it, you just, you had to do what you had to do to stay alive. And, and one of the things that keeps you alive is your observation skills. I actually lived in um, Fort Lauderdale um, in like 88 time period. Mm -hmm. And that was right when cops came out. 
I don't know if you remember the show Cops. Oh, yeah. Well, that first season of Cops, I thought, was very interesting because every episode seemed to take place within one mile of the apartment I was living in. <laughs> what kind of place were you living in, Eric? It's kind of a dump. <laughs> I was 18 years old. I was going to be a travel agent type of person, wind up working at Alamo Rent-A-Car. But anyway, that's a side note. It wasn't only Miami that was problematic, right? Fort Lauderdale had issues, too, if I recall. Oh, all the way up to West Palm. Uh, actually, up to St. Lucie. Port St. Lucie was, uh, at one point, was very active with smugglers coming into the the, the different bays and the, and the different docks that were associated there. And then you had it all the way down to the Keys. And then even on the west side, Fort Myers, over in that area, um, South Florida was just eat up with it. There were, you know, we, we had an informant that would fly loads for us out of Columbia and would land on a deserted road out in the middle of the Everglades. You know, there's um, a lot of places you could hide out there. If you're coming in by boat, especially around the Keys and get into those mangroves, boy, you can hide all day long in there and nobody ever find you. It was, uh, it's, it's almost like, a, like the song says, a smuggler's paradise. That's interesting. You brought up the informant who was flying for you. I mean, was he literally practically working for you? I mean, did you have an arrangement to where he wasn't going to go to prison because he kept flying? I mean, how, how does that work? It does. You, you, um, <clears throat> excuse me. We run everything through the U.S. Attorney's Office. So we have uh, various assistant U.S. attorneys that we work with. And, and it's just like any other business. There's guys that, that you get along very well with that are aggressive and, you know, that you become friends with. And so you call them and say, OK, this is what we'd like to do. And, and we want to use this particular individual as an informant. Um, here's his background. Here's his qualifications. Here's what we think he can do. Mm-hmm. Now, everything that you do with an informant has to be documented. So, um, and you know what, there's even times when we follow our informants to make sure they're not lying to us because once they lie to you, now you've got an integrity issue and you can't put them on the witness stand. You know, you have to disclose to the defense attorney, um, that they have been caught in in not telling the truth all the time. Does an informant tell you the truth all the time? Absolutely not. (laughs) You never trust them. You know, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Uh, they are taking a lot of risk and a lot of danger and they're being paid very well for the risk that they take, but they're snitching on people. And if they're snitching on you today, if they can snitch on me tomorrow to get out of trouble, they will. Well, is it kind of a free pass? I mean, I, and I, I want to ask because it's like, obviously they're being paid by whomever their bosses are and it's, I don't know. It seems problematic. Do you ever get caught into entrapment issues or questions of that kind? No. Now, uh, a good defense attorney will always accuse you of that, but we don't do that. You know, the our informant. So in, in this particular case, our informant offered a form of transportation for anything you want to transport it anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, he was contacted, you know, the word got out and he was contacted by this narcotics group. Who wanted to, you know, move cocaine from the Guajira Peninsula of Colombia into South Florida, and he was just offering a service. Now, if your informant doesn't tell you beforehand that he's going to do something and you authorize it as his handling agent, then it's illegal. He mm. cannot do that. And if and a lot of informants try that because they'll they want to make government money from the government, but they also want to run deals on the side. And every time they get caught, the first thing they say is, "Oh, I'm working for so and so. I'm working for this agency." And so the arresting officers call us. And if I don't know anything about it, it's like, put him in jail. I had no knowledge of this whatsoever. So, and they, they are told that at the very beginning, you know, they, they just think they're smarter than us and they might be, but we usually catch up with them. 
Well, time, I'm sure, factors into that. You can only get lucky so many times. Exactly. Okay. Now, from Miami, obviously, you went into Columbia. And I know you were on our mutual friend Chris Lockhead's show. Mm -hmm. And you didn't exactly fit in or resemble everybody around you. How was that? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what you're trying to say there, Eric. <laughs> no, I'm... Uh, I mean, you can see me. I, I just got back from Florida last night, so I actually do have a little bit of color. But I am my background is English and Irish. My mother's mother immigrated from Essex, England, to the United States when she was a little girl. My father's family is all from, uh, we believe, we're from Cork, Ireland. So I'm about as white skinned as you get, right? Uh, you go to Hispanic country. I don't blend in. I, I'm six foot two. I have light colored eyes. I used to have you know, before my hair fell out and what's left turned white, <laughs> I had light colored hair. Um, I mean, you hear, you can hear my country accent. So when I speak Spanish, I speak country Spanish. <laughs> you know? So, and it was when my wife and I first got to Bogota, we'd go shopping and uh, there's a mall in, a, in the Northern part of Bogota called Unicentro. We would walk through there and people would just stop and stare at us. And I'm, my wife has some Indian blood in her, some American Indian blood in her. So mm -hmm. her skin was just a little bit darker than mine. But, I mean, they're looking at me and I'm, I'm, you're very self-conscious about it because you're thinking the only Colombians I'd ever met were the ones I'd put in jail. So I went to Colombia thinking everybody down here is a drug trafficker, which is really stupid and naive on my part. But that's another story. Um, and so you're wondering, was my zipper open? Do I have some food in my, in my <laughs> or something on my nose? Or, you know, I mean, everything goes through your mind. But it continually happens, and it, it's just that, you know, you're kind of an anomaly. Some of these people had never seen an American before, and they might not have known I was American. They just knew that I was non-Columbian. So eventually you kind of get used to it. I mean, you still keep your eyes open, but um, you learn to live with that. Okay, and you um, had mentioned country Spanish, and in the book you talked about how you refused to lose, learn Spanish for a long time. And I can relate to that personally because I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. Mm -hmm. And I was not going to take Spanish, damn it, because I was in Spanish all the time. So I did something really brilliant. I took French. Yeah, me too. It's <laughs> <laughs> like really nutty. And then I wound up in Guantanamo Bay, um, Cuba, taking care of Cuban migrants in the later 90s under Clinton. And my biggest regret of all time is that I never took Spanish when I was younger because everyone who had high school Spanish wound up being almost halfway fluent by the time they were done. Right. So you ultimately did take Spanish then I'm guessing. Well, right. When I was selected to go and I put in, I volunteered to go to Columbia. I'm not sure if Javier mentioned it, but in DEA, they won't send you overseas. You have to volunteer to go. Mm. So I knew I'd get to go to, to language school and, and to back up just a little bit, you know, I mean, I was uh, extremely naive. I grew up in middle Tennessee and in Southern West Virginia. And I like to joke around and I'm a cross between a redneck and a hillbilly. And I'm okay with that. I know what I am. And when I first got to Miami, I mean, I wanted to be there because you mentioned cops. Well, I had been watching Miami vice mm -hmm. and I'm, well, that's what I want to do. Cause that's exciting. And you're going to have the fancy cars and the flashy boats and all the bikini-clad women, and, you know, none of that ever came about. I'm still you got waiting. Denny's. I got what? You got Denny's. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was uh, I made it to the top tier, didn't I? But, uh, when I got down there, you know, the, the other agents in the group, the senior agents, we'd all go out and have lunch together, and they'd take you to a restaurant where the menus were in Spanish, the waiters couldn't speak any English, and, and 
in my naivety, you know, I'm looking at the other agents going, what the hell? Did we cross a bridge and go into Cuba? I mean, why isn't anybody speaking Spanish, English here? I'm an American, you know. And I'm, I was being really stupid. I mean, just being as redneck as I could be. Mm-hmm. And eventually, my wife and I, we learned through living down there that a lot of those people, the circumstances that they came into South Florida is they were trying to escape a communist regime out of Cuba. Uh, they're, they're trying to find a better life for themselves in the United mm-hmm. States. This is where the world wants to come to. That's why we have immigration problems now because everybody wants to come here, right? And, and through, I guess, a little bit of maturity and, and living in a different environment instead of this little country boy, I'm in a big city now, you, you develop uh, a better understanding and some compassion for your fellow man. Yeah, and I, and I pray the good Lord and ask for forgiveness for being an idiot. I still have to do that on a regular basis. But <laughs> when I went to language school, when or after we went to language school, now we're stationed in Columbia. When my wife and I would fly home, we, you know, we'd fly up for Christmas or whatever to visit fa- our parents, and we'd have to fly into Roanoke, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of times my wife would stay longer than I would, and I'd come back, and and there would be Hispanics at the Roanoke airport, and they didn't speak English, and and they're trying to talk to the lady at the counter, and of course they didn't speak Spanish, and I was able to step up and say, hey, let me help you translate here a little bit, and I tell you what, that that mm-hmm. gave me such a um, <laughs> this sounds kind of stupid or uh, whatever to say, but, you know, it, it actually made you feel proud of the fact that you could help your fellow man. If it's something as simple as she wants to know, do you want to check your bag? Do you want to change your seat? You know, this is your gate number. Just simple everyday things. But it, it made me feel good at that point that I could step up and help somebody with that. And even today, and, and Spanish is much more prevalent in the United States now than it was back then. But mm-hmm. even today, when we get the opportunity, especially Javier and I travel all around the world, and, and you'll see a lot of uh, Spanish speakers that are having a hard time getting along in whatever country, and either Javier and I will step up and, and we'll translate for them, and it's still a good feeling. So uh, um, going to DEA and living in Miami for four years, it was a real eye-opener, but it was also a great growing experience for my wife and I both. Oh, I'm sure. When I was taking care of the migrants, that, that taught me a lot because literally they watched their relatives die, get eaten by sharks and oh. everything else coming over. And meeting some of them, it was quite literally, oh, my God, the only difference between you and me is where I was born. Exactly. Exactly. It could have been us as, rather than them. And and that that is very eye-opening because, I mean, it's like, well, that's just a circumstance. You can't blame anybody for their birth. Right. That's exactly right. No, pick better parents. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right. So now you volunteered to go to Columbia itself or just volunteered for an overseas assignment? Well, I actually volunteered to go to Barranquilla, uh, which is up on the coast. I did that as, as some of the agents there had been working a joint case with them. Um, we'd seize a couple million dollars based on information they were sending us. And it just really seemed exciting. Um and my wife came to me, we'd been in Miami over three years, and she said, you know, she's a registered nurse, and, and she likes working in the exciting parts of the hospital, the trauma units, and the, oh, wow. and the things that I think are just really grotesque. She really likes that kind of stuff. And uh, she said, you know, our life's been really exciting here. What's the next most exciting thing we can do? I said, well, we could go to Columbia. We could transfer. <laughs> and she me like, you know, I had three heads, and <laughs> like I'm an idiot. <laughs> And uh, she thought about it for a while. And she came back. She said, you know what? You still want to go down there? I said, yeah. And she said, if we're going to do it, let's do it while we're young. So I applied for Barranquilla and was accepted. 
um, had the paperwork and everything. Actually, you know, in, in our in the DEA culture, when you get transferred to a nice office, like, you know, an overseas office, you pay for the party. <laughs> so I'd already taken the group, my group out, you know, when we'd had a good evening. And then I found out that uh, they took the transfer away from me because they needed somebody that spoke Spanish there quickly. Uh. So uh, a guy in headquarters, uh, he called me and, and, you know, I just cannot remember his name. Honestly, I can't remember his name. I wish I could so I could say thank you. But he called me and he says, hey, you know, you just got screwed, right? And I said, well, I figured that. And he <laughs> said, well, we've got three openings coming in Bogota. Would you be interested in going there? And I said, yes. And so um, when the openings came out, I applied for them. And, and that's how we ended up in Bogota. But it's uh, you have to volunteer to go do that. Okay. You know, um, I don't know if you – You've probably been asked every question, but when you were there, obviously Pablo Escobar is the big, you know, um, celebrity criminal. I, I don't know how to even describe him because he's famous for being a monster. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily a great thing. Did you, did either of you ever meet him? No, you know what? The only time I ever saw Pablo Escobar was the day he died. And that was after he was dead. Um, we did surveillance on his wife. We'd done surveillance. We'd seen his children. And they were juvenile, so we really weren't doing surveillance on the kids, but we were on, on Pablo's wife, Tata. Mm. Um, and the kids were usually with her, but no, never saw Pablo. I mean, if we'd have seen him, there would have been an encounter. <laughs> okay, well, I didn't know if you might have seen him during the time when he was, quote unquote, uh, in jail. No, you know, that was part of his deal. We, we as the good guys, the gringos, the Columbia police, Columbia military, could not come within two miles of the perimeter of that prison. Oh, okay. I did not realize that so he had a really nice deal then. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I'll just tell you, he, so, you know, he negotiated this deal where he was, it's called the self surrender program that the attorney general of Columbia started and the president went along with. And so he was allowed to plead guilty to one felony that he got to put, got to pick. And in return, he was absolved of every other crime he committed in his life, including murders, including thousands and thousands of murders. So when the when the attorney general says, oh, this is great, we accept your your plea. And there's like, wait a minute, I've got conditions. He said, one is I'm going to build my prison. You're not going to put me in a Colombian prison because, you know, I got to have a place of safety. And they said, OK. He said, well, second of all, I'm going to handpick my fellow prisoners because, again, there's so many people out here want to kill me. So I don't know if you knew this. There's only 14 prisoners in that prison, Count Pablo, and he handpicked all of them. One of them was his brother. Then the, the third condition was all the guards that are here, I'm going to handpick them, and I'm going to pay them because I don't want the government of Colombia or the citizens of Colombia to have to bur- you know, suffer through the burden uh, of paying for that. Oh, my God. And the government said, okay. And then he only got a five-year prison sentence. And on top of everything else, they didn't even take any of his assets. So all he had to do was five years in this country club prison that he built himself and he paid for, and he would have been a free man. But man, he, he, his ego, his pride, he just couldn't control it. And, you know, we know what happened to him. Which is almost good, except for so many people got injured. Speaking of him paying for things, I did have a question. I think this is covered in the show a little bit, too. Was there a point that the dollar, as in U.S. dollar in Colombia, would be problematic because it wouldn't have the value since there was so much of it? 
Not that I'm aware of. I mean, he did. Pablo loved having bulk cash. He liked having those U.S. dollars. I think he probably felt like he was snubbing his nose at the United States. And, and he, you know what he was? He was the world's first narco terrorist. He's a, a man who developed a business model of drug trafficking that eventually made him responsible for 80 percent of the cocaine in the world. Holy cow. You know, that's Chris uh, Lockhead. We talked category about. creation. Exactly. Uh, you know, <laughs> and that's exactly what he preaches. And, and Pablo was doing it, you know, years before Chris came along. <laughs> but um, he had a problem in that, you know, the banks, you, they wouldn't take that much cash in there. I mean, he could pay banks off and they could take a certain amount, but he was bringing in so much, you know, they couldn't do it. So he had to figure out what to do with that money. He was burying it. He was trying different investments. He built uh, over 800 multimillion dollar homes throughout Colombia um, he had a fleet of aircraft that was three or four times what we had in DEA, and that would have considered our entire worldwide fleet. He had three to four times that many aircraft just in Colombia for himself. Wow. His son even talks about that if he wanted to go somewhere, he had a couple of helicopters he could call on to bring, come over and pick him up, take him wherever he wanted to go. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, that seems completely obscene and crazy. And I would think if you have so much cash, it's problematic to spend it. And I've, I've had a um, FBI agent on, I believe it's uh, Eugene Casey. And he talked about one of the laundering mechanisms because he worked out uh, money laundering. And I'm guessing you guys had to look into that too, because that might be another way to find these people. But he said that what would happen is like a business in Colombia, let's say a hardware store would order all their parts from the U S as an example. And they would go to the hardware store and say, okay, we're going to pay your debt. You give us the money here in pesos or, you know, whatever. And then they would pay the currency through a wire to the United States. And that was one of the methods to launder. Did you run into any of that? Well, the big thing for us was, believe it or not, primarily bulk cash being transported back into Columbia was the biggest means. But now, the, you know, they had the black market peso exchange, which is very similar to what you're talking about. They were uh, they would buy products throughout other parts, legitimately buy products throughout the world and then bring those into Colombia and sell them. And now you've got your cash back. So that's part of the black market peso exchange. Uh, they developed a thing that has gotten very popular through other countries called trade based money laundering schemes. Uh, where they they buy goods in other places like truckloads of clothing and ship those down. Um, there are some extremely sophisticated uh, money laundering schemes that I have no idea how they operate, how they work. Um, there's uh, if you ever saw the movie The Infiltrator, the agent that, that is portrayed in that, the DEA guy, who's actually an IRS and a customs agent and then DEA. Um, he ended up bringing down one of the largest banking systems in the world based out of Saudi Arabia. Mm. Uh, I've read his book. I've seen his movie and he's a friend and I've had him try to explain things to me. And I still can't tell you how that money laundering scheme works that he, that he was working on. He's, he's on the intelligence level. He's way up here, you know, but he did a hell of a job, but that's the thing in working these organizations. Why are they in business? They're in business to make money and to have personal power. Well, if you take their if you take their stuff from them, their assets, whether it's houses or or cash or airplanes or whatever it is, you really hurt them when you take their things from them. And the laws are set up in the United States so that you can do that as well as other countries, and you share the assets with the other countries. 
Isn't there a problem with some of that, though? I, I know that there's actually controversy now about, uh, I believe there was a police department. I don't remember the state, so I'm not going to throw it out there. It's, I think in a southern state where the sheriff's department was busted because they were using these um, seizure laws to essentially get a bunch of booty themselves. Yeah. You know, and that still happens. Uh, not, it's not prevalent throughout the United States, but um, they're trying, you know, especially counties that are along the primary transportation corridors mm-hmm. um, uh, here on the East coast. I'm, I'm outside the Washington DC area. You got I-95 running up and down the East coast. Um, so some sheriff's department, some of the smaller agencies will put, units out on the interstates. Uh, I drove home from Florida yesterday and, and one county that I'm very familiar with and one of the southern states had five units sitting out there watching cars go by. Now, you can't pro- call it profiling because that's been determined to be improper. Sure. But the truth is that's what they're doing. They're looking for indicators that would suggest that a car either traveling south is carrying money or a car traveling north is carrying drugs. They're more focused on the cars going south that would be carrying the money. Mm. And, then, you know, this is this particular county I'm talking about. is a, I know it very well. I've worked in that county before, and uh, it's it's one of the poorer counties in that state. And, you know, this is how they fund some of the other things in their, in their law enforcement agency is through the asset sharing that goes along with that. Is it right? You know, I'll be honest with you. I don't have a problem with it and the fact that they're taking drug traffickers' money. Uh, but you've got to follow the rules and, you know, we're, we're a country of laws and you got to follow the law. Okay. And that leads into, and I guess it's my last question, which is probably an aggravating question. I'm not sure, but the DEA is going to turn 50 soon. And I'd say the quote war on drugs is almost 50 years old. Are we winning? <laughs> you know, what? I, I'm not offended by that question at all. Uh, and I'm going to tell you the truth. And this is, you know, Steve Murphy's opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bobby and I travel all around the world. We're into our fifth year now of, of what our agents call, our speaking bureau agents call our world tour. <laughs> you know, this is the last thing either one of us expected to be doing in retirement. But, uh, you know, thank the good Lord it's worked out because I'm loving it. But at the end of every show that we do, we have a question and answer session. And the audience can ask us anything. Um, it can be about the investigation. It can be about the show Narcos on Netflix. We even talk about our personal lives to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's uh, a very common question about the war on drugs. And here's, here's my opinion. When you're going to fight a war, you get your allies together, you get your personnel lined up, you get all your materials, your, your rockets, your missiles, your planes, your tanks, everything. And you don't go in to lose, do you? You go in to win. Well, here we're fighting the war on drugs. We're going after the world's first narco-terrorist. I mean, I didn't even know what a narco-terrorist was. We're going after a man who's responsible for 80% of the world's cocaine, a man who's responsible for tens of thousands of murders. One of his own Sicarios, one of his own assassins who just died about a month or two ago. Popeye. Right. Says the number is over 50,000 murders that Pablo Escobar is, is responsible for. So here, I mean, if, if we're doing a war on drugs, we're going after the number one guy in the cocaine business, Pablo Escobar. What'd they send? Two guys. <laughs> Sent me and Javier down there. That's not a war. It's, it's 
in my opinion, the war on drugs is one of the biggest misnomers there's ever been in, from the United States government. Now, and please don't cut this out when you edit, but I'm certainly not taking anything away from all the, the men and women out there who are, are sacrificing their lives, putting themselves in harm's way on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I want to recognize the diversion investigators and intelligence analysts, the support staff, everybody that's involved in that because they are they are doing their best to, to serve the public. That's what a police officer is, is a public servant. So all these people are out there trying to serve the public. But when you send two people down there after Pablo Escobar, <laughs> does that sound like a war? Sounds more like a joke, doesn't it? It, it, it really does. And that does lead into briefly the legalization question, whether is it worth it? Is there more people who die because it's illegal and highly profitable than let's say if it was not, I'm not sure. Where do you stand? <laughs> you can probably guess where I stand on legalization, right? It's, it's down. <laughs> And if if Javier was on here, he would jump on first to talk because he knows that this is a hot button issue for me. And, sure. and so I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. Uh, we're not in favor, a favor of legalization. I've heard the same arguments. Um, hey, it'll get us out of some of the states out of the tax problems. Well, that hasn't happened. Well, it'll put an end to the violence associated with marijuana, marijuana trafficking. That hasn't happened. We've still got Mexican gangs working here in the United States growing, I call it skunkweed, but you know, illegally growing marijuana out in the forest and the hills and wherever they are. And they still have booby traps set up and they still have armed people out there and there's still gun battles and there's still murders. The uh, legal marijuana shops, they know that's a cash cow for them. So they go rob them. That's not the violence, much less, you know, I read a report here a lot long ago, a news article that I think it was in Colorado that uh, 42 or 47% of all Traffic accidents involved impaired driving from smoking weed. So there's another problem that nobody thought about. We look at countries around the world where they've tried legalization. It hasn't been successful in a single country yet. I mean, yeah, we think we're the greatest here in the United States. We think we can do it better than everybody else, but not this. It's it's just um, people say, well, you got alcohol is legal. That is. I don't drink. I don't drink alcohol anymore. I quit drinking years ago, over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But that's not in my book. That's not an argument. It's just another way for people to to kill themselves. So that kind of translates down into our young people as well. You know, it's been proven if you do your studies, it's been proven that the human brain doesn't fully mature until you're in mid twenties. And, and it's also been proven that smoking weed inhibits the growth of the young people's brains. Mm-hmm. So even if they wait till eighteen to start smoking weed. When it, you know it's legal in these legal shops, their brains aren't finished developing. So now, if if let's say the 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 smoke and the weed on a regular basis causes their brain to not fully develop, well now who's going to be responsible for taking care of these people because they can't reach their full potential, or who's going to be responsible for taking the people that have respiratory problems because when you smoke weed, you inhale it in your lungs just like cigarette, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it may not have the same carcinogens that cigarettes do, but here's the bottom line. Just like you, just like every other working person in this country, I've worked my butt off for years. I've taken risks that most people don't take. I did it because I love doing it. I felt like I was helping my fellow man. But here I am in my retirement years or coming into my retirement years. Why should you or I, the hardworking, taxpaying, honest 
citizens be responsible for taking people, taking care of people who made bad decisions, who now have uh, health problems from smoking weed or, or using whatever drug they, you know, the drug of choice. Um, why should we have to do that? Why should we have to bear that burden, financial as well as moral obligation? We're going to do it because we're the United States. You know, we do take care of each other, but it's just not fair when you've, you know, I was a cop for 38 years. I can't tell you how many times I've been shot at and the, thank the good Lord I survived. Yeah. But I think everybody has responsibility to take care of themselves, make sound decisions, try to teach my children for every decision you make. There's a consequence could be good or it could be bad. In my opinion, legalization results in bad consequences. Well, perfect. And I actually had asked Javier that as well. So I did get to um, explore both sides, or not both sides, but just both your opinions. They're right. not necessarily opposite sides. And Steve, this has been just outstanding. Thank you so much for coming on. Now, people can find you at deanarcos.com, right? Absolutely. And, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity. This I love this interview because it's a little bit off uh, what people <laughs> usually ask us. And um, most people want to hear my opinion on legalization. Never ask me that question again. <laughs> I, I have to ask. It's crazy not to. Yeah. And it's, you know, um, I know Eric, and I'm, I'm putting a little self-commercial out here. You know, Please. we have our book out, Manhunters, uh, which I'm pretty sure you're probably going to mention, but I want to mention it as well. And yes. and we're all kind of stuck at home now with the coronavirus, uh, you know, self-isolating and, and what are self-quarantine, whatever you want to call it. And, and my wife and I are doing the same thing. So uh, we're trying to think of ways that, you know, we could maybe help people. And, and my wife and I are actually exploring some couple of things to help local law enforcement here and hospital because she's a nurse. But anyway, for the month of April, we're offering a 15% discount on our book. Um, go on our website. You can order it. It's twenty nine ninety five. It will be autographed with our actual signatures, and you can even put a little personal message on there that we're happy to write to you. That includes the price, includes shipping and handling. Um, we market this book as a sure cure for insomnia. So if you're having trouble sleeping at night, this is the cure. Guys. Come on. It's a good book. I have the audio book, so you can't sign that, but I still am enjoying that. And I did want to reach out. If you are looking for things to do, I would love to have you both. If you're interested, I do a live stream and with a live stream, it allows people in my audience and your audience to be able to ask questions of you directly in the chat. And if you guys are interested in doing that, I'd love to have you come on in the next couple of weeks and we could put it out. People could ask questions and give a great opportunity for them to ask things directly because I do a lot of research, but I don't always get to the, the great questions. No, that would be exciting. We haven't done that yet. Um, and we're all stuck at home for now. You know what? Uh, I need something else to do because my wife's going to get ready to work me to death around the house. All right. Well, we'll <laughs> set that up. And Steve, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Wasn't Steve great? I mean, he and Javier are real heroes. I mean, to be the only two guys down there literally taking on a general over an army of narco terrorists. Wow. What a staggering story. Now, be sure to not to forget to check out the live streams and other video interviews on the YouTube channel. Again, look for Eric Hunley. And before I go, a couple shout outs. A show you may want to check out that's a little bit different is from my friend Andy Wong. It's called Inspired Money. And what's great about this show is it's not just a finance podcast. 
he actually talks about where money goes, how people spend it, and and good things that they are doing in the world. It could be charities, it could be raising money, it could be a lot of different things. And I also want to shout out former guests of the show and upcoming guests combined. Scott Rouse, who has been on the show and also had a live stream with me, has an event coming up next Wednesday where he goes over Carol Baskin of Tiger King. Now, to make things interesting, it's not only Scott Rouse. It's Scott Rouse, Chase Hughes, Mark Bowden, and Greg Hartley. So you have four major heavyweights in the body language world who are deciphering, hey, did Carol Baskin do it? Didn't she do it? Who knows? But check him out. It's on YouTube under Scott Rouse. So youtube.com slash Scott R-O-U-S-E. I think you'll really enjoy it. And once again, thank you so much for checking out the show. I can't do it without you.